friends and welcome to the second season of the I Belong Here podcast. I'm so excited to bring this new season to all of you and thank you so much for staying with us during the first one, for all the sharing, retweeting, posting, etc. I'm so excited for you to discover all the new role models that we have interviewed because you are going to listen to lots of stories, lots of backgrounds, lots of cool science and overall lots of women empowerment. So now, sit back, relax, and have fun listening to all the episodes. And she said, don't you change, but I can't help these thoughts up in my brain, yeah. She's breaking me down. Hey guys, welcome to this new episode of the I Belong Here podcast. Today I have an amazing guest with me, and I have the pleasure to say that she's a former colleague of mine of the University of East Anglia. Her name is Dr. Zoe Waller. Hey Zoe. Hello, thank you for having me. How are you, Zoe, today? Oh, living the dream. Living the <laughs> dream, Noelia. <laughs> why, why, why is that? <laughs> oh, it's just my stock answer when anybody uh, asks. I love it. It's like, especially when things aren't going too well, you're like, absolutely living the dream today. How are you today, Noelia? <laughs> I am also living the dream. I'm actually back <laughs> from my holiday, so I'm still a bit with my mind back in Spain. So... Anyway, it's it's okay. It's, it's good to be back as well, you know, in England and then just get used to the routine. Um, but I actually really like your stock answer because um, if I might say some of the things that shock me when I came to England is every time I ask someone, how are you today? Everyone answers me, not too bad. And that's really like, if I translate that to Spanish, that's not a really good answer. That means that something <laughs> is going on with you. <laughs> not too bad is is good like not too I bad know. it's like you know can't yes. complain after so many years here I learned that it's a good answer but the first <laughs> person that told me I was like are you okay something bothering you you can talk to me and then everyone was like no I'm fine it's a it's a, it's a positive answer and I was like all right that's fine <laughs> yeah I, I I do think some of our phrases that we use in in the UK and in particularly in England some of the things that we say um can be really misinterpreted and <laughs> and I I find I find this could because I've worked with you know lots of different people from different cultures yeah. from different backgrounds you soon learn you're like oh I can't say that <laughs> like in normal life there's certain things that I would say and then and like at work when I'm in an academic environment in particular yeah. I'm very mindful about how I word mm -hmm. certain things um, well that's awesome sometimes this also comes with the learning right because I just directly <laughs> translate it to Spanish so it's like oh something is bothering these people why everyone is not good like something is going on but then I learn you know like hey it's an expression we are all good so I was like okay fine <laughs> Um, so I'm so excited to have you here today and to have this chat with you. And I want, before discussing your amazing work, because I've obviously had the pleasure to listen to your work and uh, from your students and postdocs in many seminars. Uh, so I know more or less what your work is about. But before asking you a lot of questions that I have for you, I want to let the audience know a bit more about you. Um, so Zoe is an associate professor in drug discovery at UCL School of Pharmacy in London. As part of her role 
There she leads a team working at the interface between chemistry and, bio and biology, and it's interested in the different types of, of structures that DNA can fall into. She also contributes towards teaching pharmaceutical and biological chemistry on the undergrad M-Pharm course in pharmacy and for the MSc program in drug discovery and development. She has also just taken up the role of associate director for research for the school. Now, this is so cool, and I have a lot of questions to ask you about your work and, and, and the different roles that you have in your academic position currently. But first of all, I want to ask you about your fascinating work because you were the first person who taught me that there are different DNA structures than the classical, you know, double helix that everyone learns in school and I don't know, A-levels and things like that. So you were the first person who showed me that there are actually different structures. So I want you to explain us a bit more about this because I'm pretty sure not a lot of people will know that. Oh, yes, so you're absolutely right. It is something that even when somebody says the word DNA to me, uh, my Pavlovian response is still <laughs> to visualize a double helix. Mm -hmm. and, and I do think that if you know if you know about the double helix, that's kind of, it's, a, it's an iconic, um, it's an iconic science image. Mm -hmm. So when people think of DNA and they know about the double helix, that's something that they will closely associate with it. And, um, but DNA is very flexible and it can adopt lots of different types of structures. And I'm particularly interested in ones that form in sequences that have got a lot of the base guanine or the base cytosine. Mm -hmm. So DNA is made up of four bases and um, adenine, thymine, guanine and cytosine. And it's guanine and cytosine that I'm most interested in, that I've worked on most in my career. And what we're looking at is how different things in the environment can change the shape of DNA. Why that might happen, how that might play a role in how our genes are expressed. And also something that I'm really interested in, and I've just got funding to, to look at in more detail, is about how mutations that are accumulated over our lifetime actually may change the shape of DNA as well, because then it changes the propensity of those sequences to fold. So um, the shapes of DNA that I'm interested in are four stranded DNA structures. So rather the double helix is composed of two strands and the DNA structures that we're interested in actually are composed of four strands. So they're quadruple helices. Mm -hmm. And uh, my favorite is the I-motif, which is fo formed from sequences that contain lots of the base cytosine. And that has an almost like knotted structure so if you think about the double helix, um, I like to think of it appearing like a twisted ladder. So you take a ladder, mm -hmm. twist it round, and that's the, that's the kind of shape that we have. Whereas I motif has a very different core, rather than having rungs of a ladder, the core of this DNA structure is like crisscrossed. So if you interlock, interlock your fingers mm -hmm. um, between each other, they're like little crosses on top of each other. So rather than it being like a ladder, it's more, more of a knot. Mm -hmm. And it takes, it takes time to, um, for 
things to process these types of structures. So we're interested in how they fold, what types of folding they do, why they do that, what can make it do that, and then how that can affect disease. Um, but also there is a large application of these structures in material science. So these can be used to make different types of gels, potential DNA-based computers, because they're very responsive to different conditions. So I could completely nerd out about DNA. <laughs> um, so, but, but yeah, so it's essentially just changing the shape of DNA to see different functions. Mm -hmm. um, some of those occur naturally and we are aware of that. Learning more about that's important because I think that does play a role in the development of diseases. Mm -hmm. But then how can we exploit this? So how yeah. can we make the most of it? Yes. So you you actually mentioned two things that I was that I was curious about. So, you know, like I said before, everyone at school and, and as you said, like if you think about DNA, you think about the classical double helix because that's what we were taught in school. But was everyone always aware of this or was this like a recent kind of recent discovery that someone spotted something like, hey, there is actually different folding ways that the DNA can fold into if that makes sense so is has this been really recently in science or is this something that he was suspected and then confirmed later on um it's kind of interesting question actually and it depends on your uh your perception of recent <laughs> <laughs> yeah well kind of reason <laughs> oh i had a student the uh, a couple of couple of weeks ago that was mentioning some really old literature from the mid 2000s and I was like no that's not really old and she's like <laughs> 20 years ago and I was like oh oh yeah it's it, it that can be really hurt you if that makes sense and you know like if for someone the mid 2000s is old then I need to think about a lot of questions about my age <laughs> yeah so I was just like no it's 15 she's like well it's getting towards 20 years ago so. oh my god <laughs> so, but going back to your question with regard to did people know that DNA could fold into different structures, there's always been a lot of evidence to suggest that. And you find with any scientific discoveries, um, if you look back, there's always different, different people that have found different things. And then suddenly all of this weird stuff that people had observed suddenly makes sense. So even in the early 1900s, it was well known that if you took guanosine or the base guanine mm -hmm. um, and you dissolve that in a solution it formed a gel and that shows that there is some sort of self-assembly process mm -hmm. with that and then it was it was known in the 1960s that dna could do more than the normal base pairing mm -hmm. so when you have your two strands of dna and they form the rungs of our twisted ladder those rungs are, are essentially interactions between different bases mm -hmm. and in the 1960s it was shown that you didn't have to have the normal watson and crick base pairing you could have different base pairs and um Hoogstein was um was one of the one of the people that actually did a lot of work in that area mm -hmm. showing that you could get different types of interactions so that's the first step into knowing then, well, if you can have different interactions, then maybe it can form different structures. And actually, even, even prior to the discovery of the structure of DNA, if you can call it that, the, 
realization of what the structure yeah. was. Um, there was the biggest question around that time was that DNA couldn't possibly be the genetic material because it's too simple. Mm. And then the genetic material must be proteins because there are there's more variety with the different amino acids. Mm. And it was actually it held back a lot of people because there was this dogma that well, DNA is too simple. So there's only four bases. Mm. But what we're now realizing is that actually it's far more complicated than it yeah. being a double helix. You have bookmarks and epigenetic regulation. It can form these structures. And they're the ones that I'm interested in, but there are also others. Yeah. So we've, we've known for a long time that DNA has been a bit special. And I think now we're, we're only really scratching the surface. It's the tip of the iceberg of what DNA can do. Mm -hmm. So I think maybe 20 years from now, we'll be, we'll be kind of almost laughing. It's like, oh, we just thought it was a double helix and it did yeah. this. And maybe it just did these structures. But actually, there's a whole different layers of information that's actually embedded in the DNA mm -hmm. in the way that it's folded around proteins and the way that it's packaged. All of these things contribute to the message that it actually holds exactly yeah well it's I, th I agree with you that i think it's just the tip of the iceberg you know and i like your field so much because there's so much potential and there is so many things to discover and you know with um like you said you are interested in eye motifs but there is many other folding ways that another pi can investigate and then together you know you can come up with many things that the DNA does in mutations and foldings and, you know, base pairs, etc. So it's so fascinating that these things, you know, is, has so much potential, so many things can be investigated from it. Um, so Amal, I also wanted to ask you, because you mentioned that these foldings and these different ways that the DNA can look like, they might have an implication in diseases because there's many diseases that they have like a mutation. Um, background if that makes sense they are based on mutations and and some of them even mutate even more the more the disease progresses such as cancer so do you think this could be the this could be target like as a disease therapeutic or there could be many perhaps any like drug discovery um pipeline that they could be targeted to these ways the dna folds or is there any study an actual study of how the dna folds in different diseases do you know so that's quite a lot of questions. Though. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. I'm, I'm happy, happy that you're enthusiastic. So yes. <laughs> let's, let's start first with the relationship between DNA structures and disease. Mm. So um, there's been a lot of work looking at, in particular, I guess the best study of alternative DNA structures is that of the G quadruplex. And this was the structures that are formed in guanine. And that's because there was a lot of work done on guanine it can form gels it can do lots of cool things um and they form structures that almost like a cube if we're comparing a twisted ladder mm. g quadruplex is almost like a cube so the guanine forms um what we call tetrads which are like little squares because guanine's it's very promiscuous and its structure is really nice because it's got it's got it's quite self-complementary and that's the reason why it's very special in that way mm -hmm. and a lot of work has been done in this area to look at um the propensity or the the likelihood of finding a quadruplex forming sequence in the human genome the closer you get to a transcription start site the more likely you are to find a sequence 
that has a high probability of folding into a quadruplex. Mm -hmm. So there's always been this relationship with they have some role in the way that genes are expressed. But not only that, um, there were quite a lot of studies done in the mid 2000s, um, which, was, <laughs> which was ages ago, um, which actually looked at um, the different types of genes that they were in. And they found that in a particular study, which was done by um, a very talented scientist called Julian Huppert, um, supervised by Shankar Balasubramanian, mm -hmm. um, they published a paper that showed that 43% of all genes contained a quadruplex forming sequence in the region that controlled gene expression. And when they looked at different diseases, they found that 69% of oncogenes, so these are cancer genes, mm -hmm. cancerous genes, genes involved with cancer, 69% had one of these structures in. So there was a massive kind of sort of shift towards that relationship between trying to target them for anti-cancer therapies. Mm -hmm. And actually there have been several um, G quadruplex targeting compounds that have been um, developed for cancer and some of them have gone into clinical trials um, and that is still being developed now. So there's been a, a big um, push towards cancer treatments. Mm -hmm. And I think if you're targeting DNA, that's the natural, that is the natural kind of disease of interest that you would do if you're yeah. targeting DNA. We are, we are looking at um, a particular region of DNA that's involved in the insulin gene, which is obviously central to how we regulate our blood sugar. Mm -hmm. And so we're funded by Diabetes UK to look into that. Um, but I think there's potential for targeting the DNA for treatments, but I think more than ever now, we have a massive potential for um, diagnosis and detection mm -hmm. of disease through looking at the DNA um sequence and now the dna sequencing technologies are at this you know at the state where actually the nhs was looking to do whole genome sequencing for all mm. um but then covid happened yeah. um so some of these some of these things haven't been going at the same rate that they once were of course. but um we are we're going towards personalized medicine mm -hmm. and this relationship between dna sequence and potential function is going to be really important moving forward well it's it's fascinating i will be actually asking you questions about your work for for years <laughs> but uh, i want to discuss with you many other things because um mm -hmm. i know you said that i was enthusiastic about your work but i can also see that you are and you are so knowledgeable about all the things you know about the dna of course it's your field um, but I'm really curious to ask you, how did you become so passionate about DNA or how, how did you come to this point? You know, you have your group of um, students, PhD students, maybe masters, exchange students and so ever. Um, so how did you come to this point? What's, what's, what's Zoe's story in, in science? Because I'm really interested <laughs> to know, you, you know, your story and, and how did you become the scientist that, that you are now about this amazing DNA structures? Oh, wow. Thank you for the opportunity. <laughs> you might be here a while. It's a long story. <laughs> I, do, I do think it hasn't been straightforward because I think sometimes you hear about 
famous scientists, not obviously not famous, but like you hear about somebody wins a Nobel Prize and they said, oh, yes, I had a chemistry set as a young person. And I'm like, yeah, that wasn't me. Yeah. <laughs> so I really don't relate to that, actually. And I kind of came into science relatively or came into in to be interested in science later than I would say some some others that have been widely um, publicized. Um, because I was I was brought up in an environment where both my parents were they weren't scientists they were technicians um, and they both worked for British Telecom and so there was always a science kind of background um, but both of both my parents were also very much into arts so my dad is a musician he's an organist as well so he's always been an organist and um, a technician where well, he's retired now but mm. and my mum was actually she trained as a hairdresser and this was in the the 1970s when you did beauty science and it was science it was actual science and I, I've got her books now uh from from when she was studying and she learned all of the formula formulations of um cosmetics Ooh. she did all everything to do with like if you were going to change your hair color what happens to the hair follicle the diagrams of the skin all of that so there was always this kind of you didn't just have to do one thing you could do science and you could do more creative things so my mum was very very good at drawing as well um so there's this kind of science versus art background and I was very I, I always loved drawing and I my if you asked me when I was when I was younger what do I want to be when I was you know when I grew up I wanted to be an animator for Disney oh and, okay <laughs> yeah so that was me nice. and my, my family was super supportive so I there were professional artists in my family as well so it wasn't it wasn't like a a totally wacko yeah. idea for for somebody to do but um but that was absolutely what, what I wanted to do and it wasn't until I actually was in high school and um I started studying science that I got I realized I was quite good at it I was quite good at practical work and I think that kind of like being good at art and being good at practical things does kind of go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. So there was this whole thing about them being separate and there is even now, um, I tend to try and think that actually it's good that you're an all rounder yeah. for science. Um, and it was actually watching, I started watching a program called The X-Files. I don't know whether you're familiar with it. So sci-fi program and and I was really, I was just fascinated by um, the forensic science aspects about going and going to a crime scene and seeing, being able to work out potentially what had happened. And that absolutely fascinated me and I was hooked. And the, the portrayal um, by Gillian Anderson of the character, Dr. Dana Scully mm -hmm. was really, it was cha changed my life. Mm -hmm. Like, so I'm, they have this, there's this thing called the Scully effect that inspired girls into science. And I was, you know, awesome. and I love the extras. I love Julian. She's amazing. Yeah. So I was, um, so I was a classic kind of influenced by that. So I was, I became, I would say a little bit obsessed with the X-Files, but also <laughs> obsessed with science because I wanted to be a scientist mm -hmm. and family was supportive. I wanted to be a forensic scientist. So I went and um, did A-levels and studied science. And then I went, to university to study um, chemistry of pharmaceutical and forensic science, which mm -hmm. I did at the University of Bradford. 
And there I met a really absolutely fantastic um, person, Philippa Tucker. Mm -hmm. And uh, she, she and I became really good friends and we we're also friends with, um, there was a group of three of us. There was uh, me, Philippa and Vicky. And we were just super into science and super nerdy. And <laughs> we were like, I think they used to like call us like three musketeers and things like that. <laughs> um, but Philippa was my lab, lab partner. We used to do all of our lab classes together. And she was there when I was dropping things on the floor and you'd spent like all day making something. And I'm like, just dropped it on the floor. <laughs> oh no. But she was always like super, super nice, super laid back about yeah. things, but really intelligent. Mm. And at the end of my second year, I mean, Philippa had already had been suffering from back pain. The end of our second year, she was diagnosed with cancer oh and it was really aggressive and mm. within six weeks she had passed away oh, and I'm so sorry oh thank you. it was um it was devastating yeah like, I can age of 19 you don't expect to lose somebody no. the same age as you exactly and it it really just made me rethink about what i wanted to do mm. and i never really considered doing a phd at that point mm. um I didn't even think about there's an option and Philippa wanted to do a PhD. She wanted to do a PhD in cancer um, therapy because um, she'd had cancer earlier in her life. So she she was she'd already kind of um, survived treatment and things like that. So it made me think, well, maybe I could do something to kind of help. Yeah. So I started learning more about different cutting edge cancer therapeutics and i changed the modules that i was doing in my degree so i just really went off, completely off forensics which was really <laughs> kind of built all my life up to going to this yeah. point but it's complete step change hmm. and i learned of a group in cambridge that were um that were looking at a particular type of enzyme called telomerase mm -hmm. which the key to cancer's immortality which is what i found out mm -hmm. and i was just fascinated and i thought at the, and this was in the end of my second year having not had i was doing chemistry with forensic science didn't really do much biology i was like i want to work in that group in cambridge <laughs> um and so then my focus was to to try as hard as i could to get there so i chose modules that were more biology related i learned about cell biology i did more pharmaceutical science and um and then um graduated um um, in 2005, but I'd done a really substantial master's project. And I chose my master's project, not because of, I was particularly interested in that particular subject, but because I was like, I'm gonna get really good training in this. I'm gonna do a bit of synthesis, I'm gonna do a bit of analytical chemistry. And I think this is a good foundation from going forward. And my lecturers were really supportive and I um, managed to get interviews in Cambridge to go do a PhD there. So I was very excited. Uh, and one of them was to work in that group um mm. we're studying telomerase and um i didn't end up working on telomerase I ended up working on g quadruplexes which are the cube-like yeah. structures formed from sequences rich in guanine mm -hmm. and yeah so in my phd i was really happy i did lots of teaching i kind of learned so many different things it was such a fantastic opportunity great environment to work mm. in and absolutely loved it and then I got into teaching. I did a lot of teaching. So mm -hmm. they they do they ask. I think everybody has to do 
demonstrating when they start their PhD at Cambridge. Yeah. But I was, I, I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed that interaction with students, communication. I enjoyed the fact that it pushed me as well. <laughs> So, you know, people asking you questions, they're like, why, why, why? Oh, yeah. but why is this? And I'm like, oh, I never, I never asked why. Mm. Oh, okay, look this up. I need to be one step ahead. And it's, and it's just kind of, I think it's initially feeling a bit on edge, like, you know, to make me a little bit anxious because I'm like, I don't know all of these things. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, no one knows everything. So it's fine. You just eventually kind of accept yeah. that. So I did lots of teaching. And then I did um, my research. And then after I finished my PhD, I actually went to teach training mm-hmm. uh, because I was super pleased to be able to do teaching. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think one of the reasons I went to teach training is because I just didn't think I was going to be, I was good enough for academia. Mm-hmm. Uh, I knew that you needed to have lots of ideas. And I did feel like Cambridge is a great place, but I was intimidated by everyone around me. Mm-hmm. I didn't feel I had total imposter syndrome I was just like oh, I got here through the back I door <laughs> I got here through the back door they're soon gonna work out that I shouldn't be here no. and I really I sort of really didn't I had it was very I was very anxious in my final year in particular and to the extent that my personal circumstances weren't great because my my fiance was working in France and we were you know we were living separately so we didn't really have the kind of support that I would normally have. So I didn't really recognize that I was not sure. quite okay. So I did teach training. And then once I was doing my teach training, I was just like, oh, I miss the science. What am I doing here? I'm, you know, and I just needed to leave Cambridge. It was quite, it's, it's an intense place. It's, yeah. Amazing, but very intense. And I just sure. needed, just needed the break from it. And then, mm-hmm. so I, um, I dropped out of teach training because I was, I just, my anxiety was coming back because I was like, am I doing the right thing? Mm. And so I left and then I got a position at UBA. They'd advertised for senior demonstrators. Mm. And I was like, I can do this. A little bit of demonstrating, a little bit of teaching, a little bit of research. Brilliant. And it was, it was, it was just the thing that I needed. It was a fantastic place to work. And everybody was really nice. It was really collegiate. And it was really nice to be able to do a mixture of both. And yeah. I really, I worked out that I wanted to do both teaching and research that mm-hmm. both really appealed to me. I enjoy helping people. And that was a short-term contract. So I ended up um, going into industry for a little bit um, when my contract was coming to an end. And that really cemented that I was in industry for three months and it really did cement my kind of feelings. I'm like, I do enjoy working in academia. It's, I feel like, I'm kind of, I would say an all-rounder scientist. Yeah. So I'm not just, I'm not just here for the research. I'm not just here for the teaching. I'm here for, I'm here for everything. I'm, you know, very, very much, very keen to do lots of different things. And they had a position come up, which was a lecturer, junior lecturer position. So even though I was not, not very long out of my PhD, um, I applied for that. And um, because I'd got good reputation yeah. Um, yeah. from my prior teaching experience and my good research track record. They um, took a punt on me, I think was the words, the head of school <laughs> the but it was really nice to have the opportunity to actually just do what I wanted rather yeah. than, you know, um, but doing that at a very early stage of your career was quite, 
I now look back at it and think, well, I'm glad I was naive at the time because <laughs> I was quite terrifying. Well, because I hadn't done a postdoc really, you know, yeah. it was um, starting, a, starting afresh. And I decided I was going to work on this DNA structure called the eye motif. And I thought, well, I can learn everything that I know about G quadruplex. I'll just apply to this new DNA structure and it'll be fine. And yeah. little did I know that it was going to be this beast that was like, <laughs> really, it's like this diva. This is like, oh, the pH has changed by point, not one of a unit. And I'm going to change structure. Oh, and one of these things that I was just not expecting. Um, and then it just kept, went from there. So, and I've, I've been I've really enjoyed my career so far I've been really excited about mentoring people helping people along and um so so yeah so that was a very long story sorry no idea no no it's amazing it's a it is a, it's a big journey like um and you know I've been there where I was studying science people say you're really good at art you should, you should be doing science you're not really very good at maths um <laughs> not even joking my maths teachers took me to one side and said you know like I don't think your maths is good enough for oh. you, to, you to do science a levels so you should really consider sort of changing your options mm. and you know they did have a point my maths wasn't great but um turns out I'm I have dyscalculia um, okay. I, learned, I learned about this when I was doing my teacher training mm. and then we, we had to learn about these different things to identify like different like dyslexia and things like that in students mm -hmm. and they had this thing and I'm like wait that I wait. have that <laughs> what and it was oh too late God. by then I was like I've done my done my degree done my PhD <laughs> I've got all my workarounds but it's, it's just like if you, like if somebody tells me a number I just don't I don't transcribe it correctly or if I'm like dialing a number like I have to do this thing where I'm like there's the number there it is right it is the same right mm -hmm. I can press it all of those workarounds I've kind of developed kind of just just naturally. I just thought, wow, well, you know, my brain's a bit slow. But actually, no, it's just something not, you know, yeah. just not right. So Yeah, yeah. Well, it's I'm just fascinated by your story. It's it is a long journey. And and not because of the time itself, it's also because of all the things that you have experienced, all the things that you have tried all the things that you have to decide, you know, I think you have a great trajectory in science and it seems like you perhaps were not really sure about where to go next, but you were willing to try like, oh, maybe I think I don't belong to academia. I'm just going to keep my teaching training and then I finish my contract and then I'm going to try industry. So I think those are the things that counts in science and that's some of the things that I try to say to my students as well um, you know when we have the mpharm students in the UEA um, they need to do the pre-reg to be a pharmacist and then some some of them they do want to continue in a pharmacy but some of them they don't know what to do and some of them they ask me should I do a GSD should I start my career in science I don't know what to do and I always tell them the same like you need to try it's okay to not know where to go and it's okay to try, oh, I'm going to try to teach, I'm going to try to go to industry, maybe I'm going to try to do a bit of research, because you never know where you are going to feel the most productive, right? So you need to try, and this, there's not such a thing, I don't believe that there is just one right path in science. Even now, there is more careers, for example, in science communication, you know, or medical writing, or mm -hmm. things like that, yeah. that 
people are really brave to to go to after having a PhD or even postdocs. It's just about where you feel the most comfortable at, where you feel that you can, you know, like give to science and to the scientific community and just stay there, whatever label it has. That's not the important thing. Um, and I'll say that academia is a very tricky environment to say the least. So if you really don't want to stay in a career like that, just don't do it. There is not such a thing as you need to stay in academia just because you have done a PhD or maybe one postdoc, you know, because it's it, it's not for, for everyone, you know, the teaching, the admin, mentoring people. So you, it seems like what I know as well, for, because of I know your students and I know that you are really good at it and, and you are really good at mentoring and teaching. So I'm really happy that, you know, people have mentors like you that they also give an example, you know, also as a woman, you know, in a high, highly ranked position. So um, honestly, I'm, I'm just like amazed by your story. So don't apologize that it was long. <laughs> uh, but this is the thing, though. I think sometimes people think that, you know, you you choose what you want to be and then you become it. And yeah. I've changed, I've clearly changed my mind quite a few times and <laughs> try a lot of things. And it's okay to change your mind. And I do think that when somebody's asking for my advice and I'm just like, well, keep your options open. Mm -hmm. How long can you keep your options open for, you know? Um, because keep an open mind, see the opportunities when they arise and mm -hmm. um, grab them with both hands when they do. You know, sometimes you'll hear, I, you know, I hear students that say, oh, well, my plan is to do this for a couple of years and then this and then this. And I'm like, well, that's all very well and good, but there might not be any jobs in that area when yeah. you're looking. Um, if it's something you want to do, then you should kind of keep an eye out for the opportunities exactly. because, and then take them when they, when they arise. Mm -hmm. Now, what happens if it's not right for me at the time? I'm like, well, you apply for it. And then if you get offered it, then you make a decision because, mm -hmm. you know, you might not get it. And you yeah. might learn from that experience, but you've got to kind of take those, sometimes take things in little steps, you know, in little increments and little steps in the right direction are still steps in the right direction, no matter how, you know, small they, they are. Um, so I think sometimes people can be almost paralyzed by indecision about mm -hmm. what to do. Well, what should I do? And I'm like, well, what, what have you got available? You know, be, you know, keep your mind open and you don't, you know, no one's committed to a job for life anymore. Exactly. And I might not stay in academia forever. You know, I'm, I was, I've always been the, well, if it's, if it's nice and I'm able to do good science and I'm being productive, being productive and being helpful, mm -hmm. then I will continue. But if not, maybe I'll do something different. Maybe we'll go back to teaching, teaching in schools. I certainly think that it's something now I've, now I've um, recovered from, the anxiety that I was feeling at the end of my PhD, I think it's definitely something that I'm open to doing mm. um, because you can give so much and exactly. it's, it's very important role being, being a teacher as well. Yeah. Well, it's, um, it's just so important. I remember when I uh, finished my master's, I think I finished my master's when I was 25, I think, because in, mm -hmm. in Spain, the undergrads, the undergraduate degrees when I did it, it was five years long and then I did two years long masters in another university. So I think I finished when I was 25, 26. And I remember I had this massive fixation of I need a PhD by the time that I'm 30. 
Like I had to do that. I don't know why. I just had that fixation, you know, once I'm 30, I need to be a doctor. And I didn't count with, oh, there are no jobs in my country. I need to leave. And <laughs> when I arrive to another country, I need to adapt to what it is to go to another country. There is no cheese this yet. I need more background. I need to learn the language. I want a bit more work experience. And I started my PhD when I was 28. And mm -hmm. it's been a great decision. I've been, I've met wonderful people. I've done great science and now I'm senior postdoc and I'm just super happy of the, the path that I've decided, you know, but I think, it, and I agree with you, a lot of people are paralyzed by indecision, especially in science that it seems like you need to have so many things so fast and so many you know accomplishments all of them super fast no time gaps and it can be super stressful if you don't know well okay i need all these papers to be a lecturer but is that what i want to do can i do something else you know so i agree with you that some people are paralyzed by that so i'm, I'm really happy to listen to stories like yours you know like you've been a bit of everywhere if that makes sense you've tried a lot of different <laughs> disciplines <laughs> And it has probably enriched you a lot to, to come to the point that you are now. I guess the, the thing that I really learned along the way is that at the crux of everything in my life, people are important mm -hmm. to me. And it doesn't actually matter where you work. It's the people around you that are, you know, that are really important and the environment that you're in. You can be, you can be surrounded by, uh, you can be in the perfect job mm. and, and you know, if you don't get on with the people around you or the environment's not right, you know, you're not going to thrive. You know, yeah. you need, you know, you don't work in isolation, you work with other people. And mm. I think that's the thing that I really learned over time is that I, I really, people fascinate me, absolutely <laughs> fascinate me. And trying to work out, because everybody's different, how best to advise or mentor people um how best to kind of teach people mm -hmm. um it's always different and i think that's the that's the thing that i really i really enjoy um but er everything's everything's a battle mm -hmm. everything in my line of work is you always got to fight fight for everything that you do you've got to fight for funding you've got to fight for people you've got to fight for um you know getting people jobs and you've got to, you know everything everything mm -hmm. and and i think if you don't want to fight then <laughs> academia is probably not the place for you because no, it's a battle <laughs> i mean sometimes even buying single thing for a single <laughs> agent you're like oh my goodness i filled in three forms and that's stuck <laughs> in customs somewhere what do i, I need to do i to know get the struggle thing? I know. It. Yes, yes, I um, agree. <laughs> um, but then you know the people around you are just like, it's like, what's happening? And they're just kind of laughing. You're like, oh no. <laughs> so, so yeah. So I think for me, people are important, and I think that was one of the reasons why I was just like, I think academia is a, yeah. a good place for me because it's a mixture of everything, and and but people are central to it. Yes. Do you feel, though, that especially at your position, you know, when you are, you know, you have the reputation in your field, but you are also managing people, you are, you have a group, you have all these, you know, battles with the reagents and all of that that comes with the job and, you know, you teach as well. Do you feel that as a woman, you feel that you need to fight more or you feel that things are difficult in terms of 
proving yourself, especially when you have a hierarchy position in doesn't have to be only in academia, to be honest, could be in any kind of job. Um, but I know that this is a common problem. And in my future, hopefully near future, I want to be a PI as well. And it interests me so much to have input from people like you, you know, at your position, you've been managing people for a while now, and probably you have, you know, an opinion about this as well. And I'm curious uh, to have this input of yours for the podcast as well. Yeah, that's a it's an interesting point actually. Like mm-hmm. I think I was always like from a young age, I was always kind of a tomboy. <laughs> and I guess I never felt like a proper girl, if that makes sense. Okay. So I I'm, so I, I do find it that like all of my friends growing up, most of them were guys. Um and it was only really like in high school that I started being friends with girls. Mm-hmm. You know, and it and and I, I always find it difficult sometimes to be part of the conversations because I think different different people have like there's like different social rules yes but but yeah and and uh learning those and understanding those now I'm like oh this is fascinating but I'm just like I just want it to work I just want you know just want to kind of get along with people so I've always been actually at that interface between kind of being one of the guys and not kind of worrying about certain things but then also when you're away from that actually yeah okay i'm female and i'm experiencing sexism on a daily basis and not we're just getting used just completely being used to it so i think some of the things that i've put up with along along the years i'm like really wouldn't fly now you know mm. comments like certain comments and things like that but i think it's certainly it's so much better now than it has been and nothing's perfect it's certainly certainly not perfect i mean i do see i do feel a lot of certain with certain students and it's sometimes it's a cultural thing that mm-hmm. um that i think that I, I sometimes have different issues that somebody doesn't believe what i'm saying because yeah. i'm female um or doesn't want to listen because of who i am mm-hmm. and initially at the start of my career there was a lot of a lot to do with age because i was very young to be um to be an academic so I did also have some issues there as well. So there was sort of this judgment based on age, but then also the judgment based on being female. So, but I was just like, well, these things happen. People are people. And, you know, once people get to know me, it is fine. Usually, Mm -hmm. like I don't usually have a problem. And even, you know, there's certain, certain people that might be um, sexist or um, things like that. usually I think most people have good in them it you know and that they just need to learn and realize themselves and I think once you once you not understand that that you know you just think well somebody says something bad and then you're just like did you really mean that you know (laughs) did you really and then sometimes I'd just be like do you realize what you just said yeah you know, but it takes some confidence to be able to do that. And even now there's certain situations that I'll just smile and nod, carry on. I'm like, I don't even want that argument. Yeah. I'm just carrying on. Um, and then sometimes, you know, like I've tried so hard here mm-hmm. and I, I'm not getting anywhere and you just got to know when to cut your losses. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot there. 
Um, but it's it is getting better. Like I certainly I don't have to deal with so much. I don't don't with I don't do not need need to deal with sexual harassment as much as I once once did oh my. <laughs> at work. So um, so yeah. So I do think things are definitely moving forward. Yes. Well, that's I think you said two things that are super important for this matter. One of them is that. I think women, sometimes we are educated, perhaps unconsciously, to like deal with it. You know, like we are educated, just, just go on, just follow it. You know, don't say anything, it's normal. And I think that links with the second point that you said, which is having the confidence to say to someone, do you realize what you just said? Because one of the things that um, I want to, you know, uh, inspire to people in my podcast is that I think we need to educate each other more, not only to the next generation of scientists, but also to our generation. Because there is not, like, I also want to believe that everyone has a good, you know, everyone is, is good. Some people are not, but well, that's that's other story. <laughs> But I want to believe in the good of people. And mm -hmm. sometimes the problem is not that much as somebody said this to me or a man said this to me. The problem is if no one calls it out and no one educates that person like, hey, you said this, maybe you didn't mean that, but it did hurt me or it did harass me in a way because A, B, C, D, you know? Yeah. So I think you said those two important points that sometimes it's a combination that people are not educated and we also are as women we are educated to just go on just don't pay attention just keep it to yourself and then just do the next thing in your task list and sometimes it's like i don't want to deal with this anymore you know i i don't want to listen to this comment anymore because my age or because i'm female or both things at the same time because if perhaps if a male worker has a job like yours at such a young age as yours, they will be seen as, wow, you are doing so great and you are amazing yeah. and you are so young. But you as yeah. a female is like, mm, does she really know what she's speaking yeah, about? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You've really hit the nail on the hair. Oh. Nail on the head there. <laughs> and it really was that some people were just really sort of question what, you know, and if other people are questioning it, like, well, I was thinking, well, should I be here? Yeah, and I was actually lucky that when I was doing my lecture, when I, during my lectureship, I did feel like this is this is me. I'm mm -hmm. doing a good job, and I think sometimes you get feedback. So I'd always get good feedback from my teaching. So I'm like, mm -hmm. I know I'm good at teaching. I know I'm not perfect, and I'm constantly trying to improve. Mm -hmm. But as soon as you think you're perfect at something, you end up, you know, being being not very good because you're not, you know, you're not keeping along with the cutting edge. Yeah. So I think it's always it's good to be questioning yourself. But also at the same time, it's, you know, you have to try and find your points of reference. Yep. Okay, so what is the external validation that I need to kind of know whether I've done a good job, mm -hmm. you know, and to listen to it. Yep. And then when you're having a bad day, because there are many, yep. and you're like, oh, why am I doing this? I'm not very good at this. I hate this. And then you're like, you know, some people have a, a little um a folder in the email and they keep all of the nice things and they just mm. go have a little read through some of those things and reassure themselves mm -hmm. but sometimes you need some reassurance you know i've always been really lucky that i've had really supportive colleagues 
and it's been it's been nice that you know you've had a if you have a bad day and you can say oh this happened and I'm like oh no that's <laughs> I went through that three weeks ago and I'll come full circle and then exactly. go for a coffee or something and then just talk it out but again it comes back to the fact that it's people uh people that uh that make it are important people mm -hmm. make things bad <laughs> because from, yeah. from their actions their words whether they mean to or not and then people can make it better as well so exactly um but sort of where as soon as you start being isolated or isolating yourself from the opportunity to talk things through that's when that's when things can get a little bit dark i would yeah. say yeah and do you think as well, like as a PI, obviously you you mentoring people, you have uh, female members in your group. Do you also want to, or do you try to be there for them as well uh, in these kind of subjects, like educating them as well about women in STEM, the role of women in science and the incorporation and retention of women in science? Because I think that's very important as well, you know to to lead by the example and to help the future generations especially if they want to stay in in academia and that's one of the things that i that i dream of you know once i have my group i really want to be sure that you know the female members of my group they are equal as anyone else and they feel as you know we are all the same important if that makes sense we are all at the same level no one is more than anyone and no one is less than others so do you feel that um, this is also something that you do or you want to do with your group? Uh, yeah, no, with, with my group, I so I've always had a mixture of people in my group, apart from the start when it was just um, me and a couple of students and they're both male. Um, but I've always had transient research group members who mm -hmm. I always refer to. They're all my science children. I say, you're my babies now. <laughs> my babies my science Aww. children and think of me as your science mum and and i'm here and i will fight for things for you like i like i was your mum or like i am your mum and and i'm the same with everyone and there are certain people it's not just about gender mm -hmm. it's also about um just diversity in all ways in yeah. all, all directions it's like people forget about um certain people get left behind like um at university white working class boys for example mm. or white white working class males really don't perform very well at university and that's because of lots of different socio-economic sort of background factors mm. so it's not for me it's about giving everybody opportunities and some people are not interested of different things and i don't force anything on anybody but when I, I learn about each individual in my group, I learn about what they want to do because everybody, you know, has has a kind of aim. Yeah. And we discuss relatively regularly what that aim is, where, you know, where do you want to go? What do you want to be? And how are we going to get you there? Um, because I see opportunities and they might not see them. So I will then forward them opportunities. I won't. It's always targeted. I don't. I, I very rarely would send something to the whole group. Mm. It's always like, ah, that would be good for that person. Yes. And perhaps maybe that is, maybe that's being selective, but I mean, I think that sometimes people need to be told that that opportunity is for them. Yeah. You know, like, not that I've chosen this for, you know, this, exactly. this for you, but, yeah. but they need to have it put to them on a personalized plate. You need, you should think about this. 
because first of all it feels like it's well it is personal it's personalized it's not generic therefore it's meaningful and if it's tailored then obviously it's it's more meaningful then yeah so i don't i don't have any prescribed things that i would do but i try to understand the trajectory of where somebody wants to go mm -hmm. support them in that journey um try to give an environment where people can be open about how they feel about yeah. things like so how are you is the first question you know then how how's things going with mm -hmm. the science but how are you is really important because you know science might be going really well and how are you is i'm awful like you know having some problems at home or you know somebody's really ill that's it's important to be supportive in those in those environments um so i don't do i don't do anything specific but i try to be i try to be the mum oh, um, <laughs> i try i, don't I try love to, that but, but um i do some of them are like really like they're rolling their eyes and i'm like <laughs> the science mum and they're like oh but then, i love uh, that i i did i have had i've had examples where someone someone because this happens every so often like someone will say something to somebody in you know in people are around and it's not very nice and sometimes people are just like well that was a bit awkward um but then I'll, i typically call people out on it and then mm. one of my group said, you went a bit mama bear on them <laughs> and i was oh. like oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> like, okay fair enough but i think when when it's necessary it's necessary you know it you've is. got to start there and protect you shouldn't have to protect people but sometimes people don't realize that they're coming yeah. across as aggressive or you know exactly. why are you asking that just <laughs> no stop <laughs> so um and i'm i'm in a position now i'm just like well you know i'm relatively comfortable with what i'm doing and if somebody somebody wants the argument with me have it with me don't have it with that person that's not feeling confident right now yeah exactly well i think that's that's a wonderful way to to be a pi you know i love the science mom thing i just i honestly adore it and um you know as you said you your group is always going to be filled with transient members right because she's mm. the students finish postdoc finishes yep. master students finish as well so it's constantly changing and you have new people that they need to know you and you need to know them but your job as a PI stays, right? And it's, it's also part of your role to mentor these people because PIs can really make the difference to, to your job. Whereas if it's a PhD or a postdoc, it doesn't really matter because you have this kind of time with this PI, whether if it's female or male, and it can really change your vision about your work and your future yeah. as well in that field. So I think it's so important to have you know, mentors like like yours, and I'm pretty sure all your students and postdocs are always super happy to to count with your support as well, because I think it's so important. Like, okay, you are my PI in terms of directing my research, but I can also talk to you if I have a bad day, if I don't feel confident with my research. Hey, I'm comfortable. I'm I'm comfortable with this sentence that someone said to me. You know, I think it's so important to count with this in on a daily basis. Um, so I think that's one of the 
a lot of reasons why I wanted to bring you here because I know that you you mentor really well and you teach really well to your students and to your group and I think it's an amazing example uh, not only for people like me that I want to become a PI but also for the next generations to know that hey PIs like this exist you know <laughs> Oh, thank you, you know, Noelle. That's really kind. I mean, honestly, yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's the <laughs> truth. <laughs> we do. We have a lab motto, and I, oh, which one we have it? a lab motto. It's don't be a dick. Oh, and, I love that. <laughs> and we have so you can get little badges. So each each member of my group has a little badge. Oh. Don't be a dick badge. Um, hello, welcome to my group. <laughs> don't be a dick. It was really funny if somebody doesn't really know me that well at this stage. So kind of wait a few weeks. And I'm like, right. And they're like, what is this? Weirdo. Um, but it I is you know, be nice. Be nice to each other. Yeah. You know, there's there is plenty of, you know, question what people what everybody's doing, but there's there are nice ways of doing things and there are horrible ways of doing things. Sometimes if somebody's being mean, they need to be taken down a peg or two. And I'm not afraid to do that either. But generally, it's kind of in a, come on, like, be nice. Let's, let's be nice about this. So, yeah, so we have, we have that, that motto in the lab. I and love it. Because <laughs> <laughs> it goes for everyone, right? Don't be it a dick does. in general. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, and, somebody, and if somebody's, somebody's getting, like, a bit upset about something, it's just like, look, just be nice to each other. <laughs> And then they, they look at me and they, they, they all know what I, what I really want to say. Um, so, um, but I, it's important. It's important to be nice. And actually, and I did, I explained to people, like when they, when they come into my group, I was just like, the best thing you can do if you want to get around, get along with people around you and get your work done is be nice to everyone. And they're yeah. like, well, that's obvious. And I'm like, you say that's obvious, but the amount of people I see that just are impolite, impolite yes. rude i'm more important than this technician over here and i'm just like dara as no. soon as you start being like that then you're going to start having restrictions in what you're able to do and exactly. it's just like treat people like human beings and you'd be surprised at how 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 much you can get done and how nice people are to you you know yes. there was a lot during my phd actually and somebody goes how do you get your nmrs done so quick i'm like oh I'll just go and have a chat <laughs> they're like oh oh i don't talk to the technicians i'm like mm. well that's your problem then <laughs> yes like, that's on you <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and i was just like how long have you been waiting for your nmr to be done and these are like specialist experiments I'm like oh about a week now and i'm like i just oh, literally Lord. walk down hey i'm gonna need to do this uh anytime's fine oh, i'll do it now yeah right. and i'm just <laughs> And then I'm like, I say, and they're like, oh well, you, you know, I don't want to have to spend time talking to people. I'm like, fuck your problem. Well, yes, yeah, that's that's I'm waiting. Listen, yeah. and I, I kind of explained to them. I was like, I'm not doing, I'm not being nice to people to get stuff. I'm just being normal. Like, just yeah. like, hey, how are you? <laughs> you know, what have you been up to? Like, you know, weather's terrible. Look, I'm still soaking wet from like, <laughs> like dripping wet on the floor because it's been yeah. raining. <laughs> You know, people, people are people and people are what make the world go round. Exactly. And without having those interactions with other people, you, you know, you're going to be very isolated. Yes. So, yeah, getting these kind of themes across in my group is important to me. But then also sometimes I do have to um, point things out 
like if somebody's saying oh well i can't do this and i can't do that and it's usually like being like a female student and sometimes female colleagues they're like oh, i'm not sure about this and i'm like sometimes and this is really sexist but i'm not afraid to say it okay. i'm like what would a man do what would a man do come on yeah. they go yeah i'll be fine and get on with it like yes. and, and the, and even if they're like oh i'm not really sure whether i can do this i'm like sometimes i need to make I need to make a better because it's it is a sexist say, thing to say what would a man do <laughs> and i did at the time there was this advert for i think it was o2 and it was like be more dog and i was oh like gosh, be more God. dog but now if i say be more dog people are like what that's what? really good it's that advert long gone now so I, I have to be have to be kind of careful at how you communicate things but it's just like you have you are quite capable of doing this get on you know yes um, or try and think of somebody who they know would just do it. Not exactly. It is true. It might sound sexist, but it is true. Um, and I think <laughs> it's important to, to remember, you know, that sometimes as female, we need to overprove ourselves. And sometimes it's not really needed because we already have the skills that we need to either go to the next job or just to give the talk or submit that paper to that fancy journal, whatever it is. Yeah. Sometimes we already have the, the skills in ourselves, but we just need to prove ourselves. Um, and also related to, you know, to all the things that you need to do in, in your job. Um, I know that you are a science mom, but you are also the mom of two beautiful boys that, <laughs> please let me tell you that they are a copy of yours. They are so cute. They are so blonde, so smiley. Every time I see pictures of them, I'm like, oh my God, they're so cute and i'm i'm just like i'm just really curious about your vision of motherhood in academia because besides being a pi i also want to be a mom in my future so i'm just like i honestly have total respect for all the things that you need to do and and how you need to you know merge all these things in your job so it's just respect and and i just want your your input about it, how it is to to be a mom in academia. Um, is it obviously? I assume it's different from before you have children in terms of responsibilities after work and all that stuff. But yeah, just want your your input on it. Yeah, so really happy to talk about it. And um, yeah, so I I think when I was doing my PhD, I used to have quite quite a few conversations with other female PhD students about mm -hmm. what you do if you want children and you want to stay in academia and it was very much well if you if you have children that's that's it yeah you know, if you want children that's it and there weren't there weren't that many female role models to to us present in the department at the time there was uh there was one one female academic who didn't have children and there were two that had had children but they'd done their phd after they'd had their children so mm -hmm. then they were like so we should have had the children first <laughs> it was the kind of interpretation that we were like well um and i i was i was never particularly bothered about having a family it was not something that was in my plan um to the extent that when i did get pregnant with my firstborn i had a lot of people who were like what are you gonna do and i'm like <laughs> dude like if someone shows you a picture of a scan there is no question what they are doing like they are yeah. having a baby 
and you say yes, congratulations yeah. yes you don't yeah. go what are you gonna do like it's some like massive secret i was like you say congratulations well done are you you know how are you feeling yes exactly um, exactly yeah. <laughs> not not doubting about oh what's gonna oh, happen oh, with you what well, are you gonna do <laughs> oh my god <laughs> uh yeah so uh, so yeah so i so i i was i was i would say almost anti having children for for a long while and it was only after my mum died that i was a bit like actually like mm. I felt really, I felt different about it. Um, and also that I was, a lot of my colleagues really suffered and people of the similar age to them, because I was a bit younger than them, the yeah. majority of them, um, had sometimes waited too long to have children. Mm -hmm. And there were quite a few people that I knew that were having IVF. And I was just mm. like, actually, fertility is, is not, uh, it's a privilege actually yeah. it's not it's not something you can kind of just guarantee and certainly my mum when she was pregnant with me carried on working in the lab they didn't have anything they didn't didn't have to do a risk assessment or do any they didn't have cosh bombs I don't think so yeah. she was still cleaning cleaning benches with benzene and all sorts and oh, I yeah. I'm yeah I so I'm fully fully aware that I she was she was lucky to have a a live birth because she mm. had colleagues that had several you know stillbirths and things like that so i i just always assumed that i was probably infertile and i was like <laughs> you know like so, so couple couple those two things together and i was just like well there's no point you know i just stopped it wasn't i was trying for a baby it was just like we were just like well meh yeah there it goes and then so i got pregnant with eddie and then I was just like, right, we'll deal with it. You know, this is, but I was really lucky to feel confident enough that it was okay to do that. Mm -hmm. And so Eddie was, yeah, a bit of a surprise. So I was just like, wow, okay, this is happening. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and then we just kind of went, went with it and yeah. it has been, it's been difficult. You know, it's not, it's not easy, like mm -hmm. having a baby and carrying on an academia, but I'm, um i'm in a really lucky position i'm not lucky no actually i'm not lucky uh i chose my life partner well yeah. <laughs> and we share things equally. Yes. so um so i don't do any washing or ironing or mostly <laughs> cleaning around the house you know these are jobs that i don't do mm -hmm. um he does most of drop-offs and pickups so i'm not doing it all and that's and i think that's that's being really yeah. critical to me being able to do of what course. I do at work um so I so I do think that that was one of the things and then I didn't realize how much fun having children like mm. having like having my first I was just like it's so funny it's hilarious small <laughs> things and it just makes you view life in a different way that I just because it's not something I ever dreamed of doing and it wasn't really in my plan. It was just like, okay, well, this is happening now. Yeah. I never really, it was, I never really imagined what it would be like. I didn't have any preconceived ideas. Mm -hmm. I just assumed that I'd never get any sleep and I'd just be tired all the time. This is what people say. Of course. Um, but, but it was so, so much fun. And my firstborn is so inquisitive, so many questions. <laughs> and, and it's just and it was brilliant and i just and then i thought well well now he's here i would like to have another one because i'm like if anything happens to him it's going to devastate me of course uh, so, <laughs> so, uh, so we decided to have have another and and yeah and 
Um, so yeah, it's it's really nice to be 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 able to kind of be happy with with that as a um, as a situation. And um, I know that some people feel like they can't can't do mm -hmm. that. I was in a privileged position that I was secure in my job. I knew that I was very good at my job. My colleagues were supportive, and um, but it is it's been difficult coming back to work was was challenged the first time I had a complete like my mind was a complete fog. And I did think, I was like, my brain going to be like this forever, like coming <laughs> back from a twenty leave. And it's just like, of course, your brain, I'm, I don't know, I wouldn't say it rewires, but you spend so much time listening out for a baby and thinking, right, is it hungry? Uh, is it awake? Is it still alive? You know, that all of that to going, going into work. And then like every small sound was a complete distraction for me. So I was wow. there at work thinking, oh, my brain's never gonna work again. And eventually it was fine. So when this yeah. happened the second time, I'm like, yeah, I'll be okay. I'll, I'll be just, fine. Yeah, I'll be fine. My you know, things will, re you know, return to normal. Yes. Um, and I do think it's, you know, I've been relatively open about having children and, you know, it being, <laughs> I think I go to conferences and people are like, are you pregnant? again <laughs> like, yeah and ironically uh, i am pregnant again so i'm expecting a third are you kidding me i'm not even joking no oh my god i didn't know that oh congratulations yeah, oh my god yes yeah, so this oh one was god. yeah very much a surprise for us so i was like i oh. didn't know how things work but ta-da um and it was a bit because i've just been i just really only just moved institution i've just kind of got settled down and after the pandemic i didn't really want to have a baby in the pandemic because i was like it's a lot well, of things it's already tough by how it is things <laughs> are not great but but then we're like right no we are old enough and ugly enough to 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 do this and oh my god i'm so happy with you guys so yeah so it's very it's, it's like now we've got over the kind of oh we're having another baby oh my yeah. this is very exciting oh my god um, and I do think the first thing that I was thinking about was, oh, what about my research group? Are they going to be okay? And then I think actually the pandemic's made things a lot easier because at the moment I'm going into work like twice a week, uh, once or twice a week, and I'm seeing them also on um, like um, Teams and Zoom. Yeah. And I just think it should be a bit, bit easier because I think when I was, I would say I was a bad mum during my maternity leaves. I did go and see, I was a, I was a good science mum. I used to go in and take my baby in, <laughs> like and I'd be there feeding him and eating cake all day whilst uh, <laughs> one by one, my group would come and have a chat about their science. And I was yeah. just like, this isn't work. This is just, you know, getting on with things. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, I think being able to be flexible like that was really, really helpful for me. If I, if I had to completely shut off work, mm -hmm um then i think that would have been i would have found it really difficult but the fact that you know when you've got a small baby you were up half the night and yeah. you know if you're feeding them like you're there and i'm like well there's only so much buzzfeed that you can look at so i'm like they're on <laughs> they're they're in the literature going oh that paper's quite nice so i don't have time to read a lot of the time as an academic and actually having that period of time in maternity leave of the just being able to clear the decks and just be like, right, you know, there's no obligation. I can mm -hmm. think about stuff. My brain's not working at its best, but <laughs> <laughs> but here we are. So, yeah. so I just think, you know, you've got to take 
every moment in life and think about like what what is the best you can make of it because you mm -hmm. can always be like wow this has happened and i can't do this and i can't do this and i can't do this I'm like, okay we can't do all of those things now yeah what can we do what can we do exactly and what do we you know so it's about what can we do and how we how we can move forward is kind of how we've gone What's so well, yeah, I mean, otherwise, you know, you can always get upset about most things, you know, like, oh, I didn't get much sleep because, you know, <laughs> someone had bad dreams last night. I'm just like, I was, you know, lucky to get the sleep that I had. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, it's um, congratulations again about number oh, third. <laughs> That's so exciting. I'm so happy yeah. for you guys. And um, it's it's great and so inspiring to hear you know your story and, and your input about all these things that we have been chatting today it's uh it's been a wonderful interview and I'm, i just learned so much from you we've been colleagues we we crossed paths many many times at uea mainly because my boss office is it was just next to your office so we crossed paths <laughs> many times because i go to my boss's office many times per day or per week <laughs> So obviously I knew your, your input about many things, but it has been, today has been an amazing chat and I've learned so much from you. And I hope you realize that the great professional that, that you are in all the aspects, not only on the science, but also in all the aspects that we've been discussing today. And I'm pretty sure your chat <clears throat> is going to inspire so many young scientists and little girls and, um, just you know grasping everything that we've discussed today i just have one last question for you uh to conclude this interview <laughs> and um basically if um i want to inspire the next generation of scientists right with uh testimonies like yours and, and other guests that i have in the podcast so if you have them in front of you right now what would you tell them as words of wisdom it can be many things. It can be no. You can say more than one thing. <laughs> so there's mainly two two things that I would probably say actually, mm -hmm. and one of them one of them is is actually about being being a bit stubborn. Okay. And because I've had people tell me quite a lot of times, you can't do this, mm -hmm. and just ignore people like that because. There are enough barriers. You're going to have enough hoops yes. and um, things to go over. Um, but other people's opinions are their opinions. And if yep. it's something yep. you want to do, just go and do it. Because there's always a way. And if it's something that's meant to be, you will, you will get there. Exactly. You know, there's always a route round. There's always something you can do. Um, then the other, the other thing I would say, and um, is keep going mm -hmm. and this is a bit of advice that i got from my phd supervisor who is uh, other than being oh, he's a genius but um he was also aside from being a genius was a, someone of very few words especially mm -hmm. on a personal level and and that really stuck with me keep going and it's just like yeah. when other people are you know doubting you or and you think that this is the right thing to do. It says, pay close attention to what people say and think critically about it, but think critically about it. Mm -hmm. Keep going. Um, and it is, you know, you've always got to kind of, there's never any kind of 
things that are completely black and completely white in this world and but keep going and again small steps in the right direction are still steps in the right direction Mm -hmm. i realize that's three things so that's that's all right that's completely (laughs) fine (laughs) because those two two three things are an amazing advice and i completely agree with you we need to be stubborn we need to take small steps in the direction that we think we are going because that would be the right way to go and um I'm just so pleased to have you here as part of this family in this second season of the podcast. And uh, I hope you had as an amazing time as I had. Uh, it's, it's a pleasure to hear about you and your story, Zoe. You are really inspiring and uh, you are doing an amazing job for, for science and for mentoring and, and for everything. So thank you so much for, for sharing all this with us. Thank you so much for having me, Noelia. You've been really, really sweet, and and just yeah, like I'm, I you made me blush. Um, oh. But yeah, I just try my best and hope you know, hope that it can help people. So thank you so much for having me. I've been really, I've been watching from afar uh, <laughs> your your podcast. I think it's super professional and really oh, thank you. How, it, how it's going. So so well no, done. I am blushing. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for having me. Thank you. <laughs> Talking, feeling magic, and I always start to panic Cause I know I gotta have it These eyes, they don't attend Yeah, I swear I get it That is what's the odds that I will manage Yeah, the 21, not savage Yeah, I don't understand it And you're talking, feeling magic